I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, uh, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly in a place that has friendly discussion and debate. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And this is our monthly, now regular monthly episode of the Hanover House, where we gather two other local church pastors, one in the Deep South, uh, one in the Midwest, Northern Midwest, uh, on the Great Lakes, uh, to get different perspectives and thinking uh, pastorally about some of the topics that we've discussed on the podcast previously. Because I know a lot of our listeners are pastors, are seminarians, who have plans and hopes to do pastoral ministry or who are laboring uh, now. And, and some of our conversations that we have on our episodes, I think, are congenial to thinking about how do we actually practice this in the local church context. And we've got, you know, Brandon's a pastor here on the East Coast. Uh, Jake's down South. Connor is up, you know, North Midwest. So varying different congregational locations. People think differently. People talk differently. And we can figure out how uh, these different topics apply. So, I think we wanted to talk about Matthew Bingham's episode on congregational ecclesiology. And I think there's a lot of areas that we can talk about when it comes to that episode. I I think it was a great episode. It was probably one of my favorites uh, interviews that we've done. He is just really cool and had a lot of wealth of knowledge. One of the things that we talked about is in his chapter on on being reformed, he's talking about congregational ecclesiology. And he makes the claim that it's perhaps closer to Presbyterianism than many modern observers might realize, and that they insist on a plurality of elders ruling over the local congregation, and even argue that multiple local congregations should be joined together in a robust consociation. So I think those are two topics that are interesting for whether you're a Baptist listener or not. If you're not a Baptist listener, maybe you're just listening in and you're you're, you're curious on, on how a Baptist thinks about this. Or maybe you can glean some, you know, actual pastoral application that we talk about it from. But if you're a Baptist, I think this is especially useful. So maybe we just kick it off and just talk about historic Baptists insisted upon a plurality of elders. That does not seem to be the case in most local churches. I would imagine I, Connor and Brandon, you can talk to this since I think you both came to churches that did not have this. I don't know if they still have it uh, the way, like, I don't know. I don't know how it's run. So maybe Connor, what, let's just start with you. How is your church run? How is it run before you were there? Do you have plan? If it's not elder led, elder rule or whatever, uh, do you have plans to go that direction? What does that look like? That's a good question. Thank you. Um, you know, when I arrived here, you know, I, I think there's there's always um, health that can be had or, or a church can get healthier no matter what, you know, part of its history you're in. As a pastor, you arrive and you already see, oh, this 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 can change, this can change, this can be better, this can be better. Uh, but by and large, as, as far as um, polity, the, the structure here was already a, a very big positive. And that was one of the reasons why in my first pastorate that I, that, that contributed to the decision of, of wanting to uh, move forward here. So we do have um, the office of deacon, the office of elder. Um, but there, there are a couple things 
that have, I believe, fallen into or are currently in that old Baptist, American Baptist traditional style of leadership. Um, and I, I will say that there's still this difference between pastors and elders that we have. Hmm. Um, obviously, uh, anybody listening, most people listening to the podcast might think, well, there's no, there's no difference of pastor and elder. It's the same thing. Yeah. And, and we all know that. But here, th- there's kind of that function of the elders as that traditional board of trustees that you'll probably see in a lot of a lot of places, a lot of Baptist churches in in the states. Um, so you know, over time, we're we're looking at this. Even in my first year and two months here, why, <laughs> you know, why yeah. exactly are are we calling ourselves this? Whether we're pastors or elders, and and why are we doing deacon stuff, or why are the deacons doing this and that? And so a lot of what we are, what we're talking about with our leadership, elders, deacons, pastors. Um, is just trying to narrow down biblically what our roles should be. And yeah, I think down the road, um, as we, as, as me and my associate pastor kind of shepherd our elders, shepherd our deacons in, into this change, I think they'll see, you know, hey, like we, we need more pastors <laughs> We're actually, that are actually functioning that way. We need more elders um, that are actually functioning that way so that um, the elders aren't doing all the administration. The elders aren't doing all of the um, the physical, you know, the finances, the physical building um, aspects of, of ministry. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just I think it's the structure is in place here um, as far as titles and how the Constitution and bylaws is set up. It, it's there. I, I just think um, the harder work might be specifying the roles of each of those offices and making sure that they're not crisscrossing and making sure that, you know, the elders, the pastor elders are actually freed up uh, to do um, the ministry of the word more than they are now. um, I would say, but I I don't want to make it sound like I'm complaining at all. I I really feel like, um, like I said, the structure is here to really become a healthy church in the next five years, uh, really. Um, not that it wasn't healthy before, but kind of taking that next step, so to speak, to uh, um, so I think it's kind of in between what we we might normally see, uh, and and Jake and Brandon, you might um, agree to this or not, but it's sort of in between what you might see in the American South, that tradition, that Baptist tradition, and um, on its way to kind of what a, a structure or or a, a polity that that um that we're you know trying to discuss here yeah i think we're just assuming here for the the sake of argument the sake of time that plurality of elders is the way to go Mm -hmm. i think there's biblical rationale for it and it seems that this area causes a lot of tension in churches that don't have that structure initially so maybe brandon do you have any comments on your own experience so the church that I currently serve at, and my perspective from this is a little bit different from from Connor. I, well, I guess because we have a different structure, and because I'm I'm in the associate role here. Um, but so before I came on, um, it was it was senior pastor, youth pastor, and deacons. And the deacons here, um, I, if, if for risk of oversimplifying things, they basically function as elders and deacons uh, under the title of deacon. 
if that makes any sense. So they handle a lot of the physical um, needs of the church and things like that. But then also, um, I would say the, you know, guidance, spiritual guidance and things like that. And what, what the broad direction of the church and key decisions and things like that. Um, so we're, uh, you know, we don't have a, well, I mean, I guess technically we do have a plurality of elders if you count to a plurality, but, um, I don't know. So, uh, and yeah, so we're, we're not, um, and, and that was the same thing with the church I grew up in. It was senior pastor. Um, and then you had deacons who, who kind of functioned, uh, in both, both capacities under, under the one label. Um, I, we've had discussions about wanting to, um, see things move in a, you know, have a plurality of elders and then have deacons who actually just strictly do deacon things. Um, because it is difficult to do both. That's the reason I think there's two offices. And then I guess on the distinction between pastors and elders, and then maybe this is where I don't know if I'm where you guys are on this or, or I'm totally open to correction on this, but, um, I see <clears throat> maybe in, I, I of course, pastor and elder is the same office, but is the way we, um, I guess, culturally, you know, the guy who's who's visible, who's doing a lot of the preaching and teaching, we, we normally call him pastor. And then the other guys we're, we're going to call elders. But of course, the qualifications scripturally aren't any different. So those guys who are elders should have all the same qualifications. They should even be able to teach. So I guess I see the difference, maybe not a qualitative difference, but a, a, a quantitative difference, maybe. You know, the guy who's paid by the church uh, or who um, has most of the preaching and teaching time, um, we, we, we would call him pastor. And then the, the elders, while they should be able to teach and they should meet all those other qualifications, we would reserve the the and I guess it just at some point it just boils down to semantics. You know, they're all pastors, all elders, or whatever. But I don't know where you guys are on yeah. that. But so we're we're still we're still moving here, and uh, our church I think is moving in a very healthy direction. Where a lot of good things are happening, God's doing a lot of good stuff. But as far as our our structure, I mean, um, just full transparency is not where I you know think it should be. You know, it, it should be, but. Um, that's not to say we're, you know, yeah. not functioning well or anything right now. So, because we are, so, so Jake, before you give your own context, uh, maybe I just want to throw this question out there and maybe we'll, we'll come around to it of if, if you're a pastor somewhere and you're not happy with how your polity is set up, how, how do you fundamentally change that? And if your congregation isn't on board with where you're at, what do you do? Um, I think that's an interesting question that maybe we can return to. But I think, Brandon, you said something that was interesting about the terms pastor, elder, and using them differently. And I think you're right, and that's how we've used them. But I do wonder if that's counterproductive. If the Bible gives us one office, it seems that uh, it would be helpful for our own congregations and people to just have everybody have the same name so that they don't Mm -hmm. get confused and just assume, well, the pastors have more authority and the elders have less or whatever. Call everybody a pastor or call everybody an elder and just go with that. And I think that would probably help people. Yeah. Oh, and that's why I was, I made sure to use the, to, to emphasize that there's no, there shouldn't be any qualitative difference. Like, you know, um, yeah, but, yeah. but maybe just the, the amount of time that someone spends 
doing pastoral ministry, you know, is going to be different for the guy that we traditionally call pastor. Now, I do think you have a good point that wh- why do we call him a different name? I'm just thinking through. I mean, call him staff call and non-staff or, or lay yeah, and vocational yeah. or whatever you want to do. Right. I think that's fine. But I do think when you split the names up drastically, like pastor versus mm-hmm. elder, it, it in most people's minds who haven't gone and read a book on polity, they're going to just naturally assume Yep. that there is a different level of authority and power in those two offices. No, that's a good point. Yeah. I would, right, I would affirm that um, what Jordan's saying here in Michigan at, at our church, there, there is an understanding that those are two different offices and our, you know, our folks might not um, use those terms offices and, and, and different roles and everything, but there's an understanding that these two roles are different yeah. um, at least in our, in our local church context. So I, I think Jordan has a point there for sure. Jake, I'll let you talk to this topic. What, what, what do you got going on in your local church? Has it always been that way? Um, do you have plans to, to change anything in the future or are you at a good spot? Well, I, I certainly didn't grow up in a context where there was a plurality of elders. Um, you had one guy who was the pastor, but I had a conversation yesterday actually with a, another pastor in Mississippi who's trying to, to lead his church in a revitalization effort. And he made a comment yesterday that I think really resonates with probably a lot of men who are serving in ministry and would fit with what I, you know, my context. And that is that many churches, when they hire a pastor, it's almost like they are, they think that they're hiring an independent contractor who they bring in to do the preaching, but they do everything else pastorally. That's the deacons and they do all of that stuff. And it's just your job to kind of preach and you need to, you know, make the numbers grow. Now, in my context, I grew up uh, in more of a a tradition that basically, you know, we didn't have committees. Um, Usually you had the old saying was the bull of the woods who ran the show. And that could be either a man or a woman who was the one person who kind of, you know, pastors came and went, but they were still there. And they pretty much whatever he or she said is how things function. And so I I remember going to um, I had just become aware of nine marks and just a little bit about elders and then went to a weekender at Capitol Hill. And, you know, the first thing that they do at a weekender is bring you in to watch an elders meeting there. I was just blown away by how that functioned, how that looked, and then just going through the process. And kind of maybe to answer the question you threw out there, it's not that I had any pushback on teaching on these things when we were in our revitalization, but the error that I made was pushing for people to be put in positions too quickly because I went there and, you know, heard about the importance of plurality of elders. Well, we didn't have plurality of elders, so we need to have plurality of elders. And, um, you know, looking back now, mistake made of uh, elevating somebody to that position um, that really shouldn't have been. And then even later, somebody putting in position to be a deacon. And um, that shouldn't have either. And that was my fault because it was me kind of rushing things because 
I heard these truths. I believe these things taught those things. And so I thought, you know, coming back and I, I can remember I can hear right now, I don't remember exactly who it was, whether it was Deborah or Lehman, but saying, you know, don't go back to your church and say, all right, we got to do this tomorrow. And I didn't do it tomorrow, but in two months, I was like, we got to do it now. And, you know, because I wanted to be biblical. And so the intent was good, but I, I definitely rushed it. And, and that's, you know, looking back now, I, a mistake, a mis- real mistake that I made uh, in leading the church in that direction. Where we are today, uh, it's kind of interesting that you, uh, we, we have a plurality of elders, but there is only two, there are only two of us um, there. And it's kind of interesting that you make the comment about pastor and elder. Um, I won't go into that, this story on here publicly, and it's not a New Testament, but I know of some, uh, let us say, well-known Calvinistic Baptist churches who it blew my mind when I knew somebody who was a staff-paid pastor there, but he was not an elder. What? And yeah, and and so I can tell you about it off the off the record if you want me to. <laughs> oh my um, but but and, and what was frustrating was is that there were people coming to him with concerns because he was a shepherd, but he couldn't do anything really about those concerns because he had no voice as an elder. And um, oh, and I told him, I said, that's the most ludicrous thing that I've ever heard. Yeah. Is that a person could be a pastor but was not an elder. Let so me anyway, give you a hot take that I don't do. That's the product of the mega church machine, right? Well, there's some other things that I could say too. Um, as I said, I'll say it off off camera or off <laughs> video, off recording here about where a lot of that came from. Um, but so it's interesting in our context. I Brandon's right. So, for example, on our church sign, my name is out there because I'm the main preaching guy. You know, I do most of the preaching and most of the teaching. Um, but on our website, both myself and, and Harry Scoble are named as pastors or elders there. And I always try to, you know, just show that in our relationship and ministry, I kind of explain it this way. I do a lot more of the public preaching, teaching stuff, because I think that's where my gifting is the most, um, which he's a good preacher and teacher himself. But he also is more on the lead in a lot of the counseling that we do. Now, we're both involved in it, but he that is more of his gifting than mine is in a lot of respects. Plus, he is you know, married, has children. You know, he's older, so he has a lot more life experience than I have. And so that's a good compliment for each of us as what are our strengths and weaknesses in serving the body. And, and I can just say to y'all, especially this year, um, with so many things that have gone on with the, the COVID-related issues that I, I can't imagine that the burden would even be greater if I were trying to fly all this solo in a year like this and, and it all be expected on, on me, you know, what do we do? And so it's just, it's just practically, I think biblically, there's a clear teaching for plurality. But he and I have talked about this before. Jesus, I think, had an intention why he sent the apostles two by two, why we read through the book of Acts that Paul has other people with him. There's also great strength and encouragement when there's a team of you working together in a church shepherding. I think one reason a lot of men have been burnt out over the years or why they're in and out of a place in two to three years is all that's on them. And, you know, not to 
not to elevate ourselves into some clerical hierarchy here, but it is a truth that unless you've been in pastoral ministry, you don't really know what a pastor experiences in that duty. And so it's, you know, having been there before when you're the only person, you know, that's a hard thing. And it's very frustrating and can be very depressing at times when you just feel all of that. So, um, you know, we, we're still growing um, as far as understanding what does, I would say our model is an elder-led congregational model, um, but the Lord has definitely blessed us in, in many ways. That's good stuff. So uh, may, and maybe maybe we'll talk about the, the elder-led versus elder-rule distinction uh, in a little bit. I, I don't want to go super long on these episodes uh, unless our listeners like all reach out to me and tell me, no, keep it going longer, then, then you know, we'll do that. One of the things, the other aspect of this episode from Bingham talks about the plurality of elders. And then we talked about this robust uh, association. I do not see a robust association in Baptist life. Uh, You know, if, if you look at the Southern Baptist Convention, which I think we're all technically a part of, all of our churches are, there is... Uh, it's it's very clear that it's just a voluntary association uh, to pool our money to do missions and educational training type of stuff and nothing more. But this 17th century ideal of Baptist life was robust. Um, what the SBC has is not robust. So should Baptists recover this practice? If so, what does it look like? Because, I mean, personally, if you want my own opinion— I like a Presbyterian form of church government a little bit more. I think there's some things of it that I think Baptists should uh, take. So I think Baptist life should be closer to Presbyterianism than modern observers might realize. I think Acts 15, when the apostles and the elders gather together to consider this matter, and, and they give, they you know, they come and deliberate and they make a decision. I think that's a good practice for healthy local churches. I don't see why that has to deny local church autonomy. Why is it wrong for for pastors to to want to come together on a regular basis to think through issues together? I don't see a problem with that. I think that's a good and right and true and beautiful thing. Um, All of you may disagree with me, so I'll let you guys talk about it. I don't know who wants to go first. Well, I mean, I'd be glad to go first because I'm actually doing a, a, a Zoom call this evening with some some brothers and trying to actually organize a, a regional association centered upon the 1689. So, you know, we're going to find out, practically speaking, how that goes and what it looks like <laughs> and everything. Um, so so let me so let me respond to first of all. OK, Um Acts 15. What is fascinating is in all of the historic Baptist associations that formed in England in the 17th century, cite Acts 15. Now, that's one of the Presbyterians' favorite proof texts for all of their kind of, you know, what they do. Um, But Baptists cited that for a model for good associationalism. So I would agree with him that I do agree that I think that historic Baptist associationalism is a lot closer to a Presbyterian model somewhat than what's going on today. Here's the problem. We can blame everything on the Enlightenment 
on one respect in one one hand. Um, I also wonder about the factors of the Civil War because a lot of these things too change, not only with the Enlightenment but also with the Civil War in the United States. So if you, yeah. if you go read Greg Will's book, Democratic Religion, you will find that robust associationalism was not just a British thing; it was an American thing, and it was also an American and Southern thing. That associations were more than just gathering together to shoot the breeze and gossip and talk about whatever's happening in on Fox or CNN um, and then pray for five minutes and say we had, you know, some kind of gathering. Um, so he's right. We we need a recovery of real, robust associationalism. That's first of all, that's confessional. And now we could do a whole episode on what I think about the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> but one of the things that I struggle with is when everybody says it's a confessional denomination. Sure. Somebody needs to explain that, because to me, when you say that an organization. All right. So let's let's step back. If you're going to say that this is a confessional entity. Historically, that would mean every church adopted that confession of faith yeah you can go read that in mark dever's polity they do a whole section on this too you do not have to subscribe to the bfm 2000 to be in that's yeah. not a requirement okay so it's not a confessional organization that may be for entities and all that but that's different than saying we're a confessional denomination well, you're right so it needs to go back to and then to a confession is not supposed to mean whatever it wanted whatever it a confession is supposed to have a meaning. It's not supposed to be elastic, as I heard one person in SBC Life put it <laughs> last year. Okay, that about the BFM two thousand. If a confession is to be described, as who elastic, said that? I won't say on the air here. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, we'll save all that for after hours. But oh, um, you know, well, we need to get Jake a drink. <laughs> Sorry, we don't. No, no, this is this this all comes naturally. Um, it would be probably frightening if you loaded me up on something oh, alcoholic. Um, so, but a confession is not supposed to be elastic. It's supposed to mean something. So hearty confessionalism must be an association, right? But also you're right. Education, missions, but here's something else. Caring about the spiritual life of the churches. Not seeing yourself as a bunch of competing teams trying to be the largest in the market, but seeing yourself as working together. So here's something that was practiced in the 17th century at association meetings. You would have church churches write letters, and it was more than just statistics. They would share about what was going on. And sometimes they were honest and saying, this past year was one of the hardest years we've had. We've had this many people have to be disciplined. We've had this many people that have left. We've had this many people die in our midst. We, we, we feel like there's a decay or decline. And you would share all that and, and sharing your burdens to have the churches and the pastors come together to know how to pray for you and encourage you. So it wasn't just some kind of like generic thing. It was actually being real with each other. Now, how many of us would be willing to do that in a meeting, to actually be, to use a, a term, be raw with each other about what's been going on the past year? Uh, we, we don't have time for that now. We've got to hurry up. We got to do the business and you know move move through all those things and, and get out of here. 
Um, I mean, those things used to take three days and they actually accomplished things. I grew up in a missionary Baptist context and we had association meetings and I can tell you what was the priority. It was getting to the banquet outside in the fellowship hall. That was the (laughs) priority. And so, you know, and another thing too is, well, an association is not supposed to be just a preaching conference. There, there was what were called circular letters that were written that a person was chosen in each year to address a doctrine. Maybe a question of concern came up or a way of encouragement, but it was meeting. And, and I've been in a lot of meetings, and I would be glad to compare those circular letters to what are the usual association slash convention sermons that are given. Because you know what? They're usually the same thing every year for such a time as this. And here we go with whatever is the time. And um, there's not much meat and content. So we do need a recovery. And the last thing that I would say is James Renahan makes this argument. He says that we all as Baptists strongly say that it is totally inconsistent for a person to say, I'm a Christian, but not a member of a local church. And his argument was, if you were to go back to the Baptists in the 17th century, they would use that same argument and say, it's inconsistent for a local church not to be in communion formally Mm. with other churches. And I would say, look at our history, our confessions, our catechisms, William Carey, the Missionary Society, all of those things didn't happen by just one big church doing something. They were all churches coming together putting their name and their money and their cooperation. Um, But I really, personally, we have allowed so much, I would say, a Western slash American view of freedom and liberty Hmm. that has made church autonomy uh, the highest point on the mountaintop. And I would say that I don't think church autonomy will be healthy if it's not grounded in real communion and associations, not just grabbing a meal with my pastor friends, more than that, that we're in formal communion with each other. And I think Baptist polity has suffered, whether we're talking about lack of regenerate membership, the sex abuse stuff, and and poor understanding of ordination, and all those things come back to this abandonment of real, true, historic Baptist associationalism. Good stuff. Brandon, Connor, what do you think? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have much to they add. Think that, oh, yeah, yeah, they think that I'm right about everything. That's what they think. <laughs> I'm, I'm distracted. Connor's sending text <laughs> messages over here in the middle of the podcast being disrespectful. So I've... <laughs> I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. I've you were just compared to Blake Griffin. I don't see why that's a dis- disrespectful thing. Oh, it'll get on Twitter too. Uh, I just mean that he was texting. Um, well, Brandon won't know he's not there. You know, some, something I do have actually something uh, productive to contribute. Um, <clears throat> Jake, what you just said made it, it uh, recalled in my mind something Bingham did say on the podcast. He said, um, I, I'm not going to get it word for word, um, but understanding this idea of autonomy is not divorced from, as you said, a robust associationalism. And it's almost like where does autonomy end and and where does that association authority come in? And I think he, um, I think he 
articulated it well, saying um, you're essentially autonomous with the help of of other churches partnering with you and and helping uh, those churches out. I mean, and I, I forget exactly what his quote was, but it was like it, it was really spot on in 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 trying to. Um, to kind of not draw the line, but maybe that's what we're looking at. Draw the line between, okay, when does a, an association's authority stop? Um, and when does um, the, the local church's autonomy just take kind of take over, so to speak, yeah. um, at the local level? And, and I think, I think he hits it uh, the nail on the head that you, we need these robust, strong networks uh, but that does not mean that the network uh, can say, can tell that local church, okay, this is the pastor you have to hire, or this is how you should set up your your budget. This is how you need to, um, you know, operate your day to day. And I and I think Jake, I'm just going to agree with with him, especially on it's just the example of, of discipline. I, I think other local churches should be involved in in thinking through these things. Um, and should be involved in thinking through the the um, the, the calling of a pastor, but that doesn't necess- that doesn't mean that that association is making the decision. They're there to help and come alongside. And and I mean, we you you mentioned the um, the Carrie Fuller um, partnership that that launched the uh, the Great Mission work, and and that, that's you know that's got to be a part of this too. I mean, we're we're missing you know, a, a big part of who we are as the church, if we're not um, partnering together to plant more churches, uh, more gospel-centered um, churches. So I d- actually did have a question um, if if we're, if it's okay to take a... You can ask a question. I'd, I'm going to say something either way. So you okay. ask well, your no, question. Why don't, you, put it why don't you make your comment? And if we have time for just a, a hypothetical. All right. Um, go well, ahead. So... When it comes to the, you know, where does, you know, the independence of the tr- local church end and this association's power begin? Uh, you know, it seems to me a lot of local churches and a lot of local church pastors have so idolized freedom that it's like anything that has the word association is encroaching on my own freedom. Mm. And I don't even see why there has to be this strict bifurcation where this association has any power. I don't have to say the association has any power. And even if it did, as long as it's a voluntary association, you can leave. No one's keeping you here. No one's forcing you to be here. If you don't want to listen to what the association thinks, leave. Uh, But I mean, that's, that's a practical, pragmatic standpoint. I think the associations, there would be good in having them to say, do, do practical things like uh, when you have a church discipline case, bring it to your regional association and we will give a recommendation. You don't have to follow that recommendation. There's no binding authority, but there is a requirement if you're a part of this association that you bring difficult pastoral matters like this to like-minded brothers who can help yeah. you think through this issue. And, and the same thing with you know new pastors, uh, forcing them to go through some sort of test. I mean, I, I think, honestly, I think the Presbyterians and others Get this, get this right. You don't have to do it in the same model and fashion they do. But the fact that guys who are trained for the ministry and some of these other denominations have to actually go through theological testing and study, where in our denomination, you don't have to do anything, seems stupid 
if I should put it in a big theological word uh, to me, it seems like it would be helpful to have the opinion and counsel of other churches to help think through these matters. And it's, I would say it's purely a recommendation. It's not a forced requirement. It's just a recommendation. I don't know. You guys can talk to that. Yeah. I mean, I think your point about, um, you know, getting counseling from, the association on, on different, you know, church discipline matters and things like that is a, a really good point. And another thing that, you know, both of these issues that we've discussed, the plurality of elders and the associationalism, they affect the life of the minister, like at like very, like at a very basic level, like emotionally. And we already, Jake mentioned burnout, like both of these, yeah. like if you're at the, the quote unquote at the top, you know, by yourself at the, at the church, that means that much more is going to fall on you. And if you're not seeking the help of other churches around you and other pastors and other churches around you, then, you know, that much more of a, a burden that you're, that you're just taking and shouldering yourself. And, you know, isolation is just not a good thing. I think we know this when it comes to, to sin and to just our, our mental well being. it's, it's not good. So, just from a very personal standpoint for for pastors you know it's it's not good for us to try to do all this stuff by ourselves and i think the autonomy thing is not just a, a um what word am i looking for um it's not just a draw for for local churches but if we're going to be honest it's a draw for individual pastors they don't want to share the responsibility because they see that as sharing the power in the church. And, you know, that's something that we need to, we need to think through and, 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 you know, I guess check our own hearts when it comes to things like that as well. But I I just, just practically speaking, I don't see what the advantage could possibly be of, of, of giving all of the burden to one guy and there and, is and no what, advantage other than yeah. power. <laughs> it, yeah, <laughs> Let's I guess just it, be honest. And I don't it's see the advantage. Power. Of, yeah, and, and I don't get, see and, and to, take, to the church level. I don't see the advantage of you know of uh, of so focusing you know like highlighting local church autonomy. You know, it, it there, there's just no. It, it's not going to end well. I mean, it's just not going to end well. But it seems to be the most popular approach uh in our circles i guess or at least around here um yeah but here and here's the thing all of this goes back to that at the turn of the 20th century the idea of soul competency became what was the distinctive for baptist where you're talking about ey mullins and others that becomes all that it means to be a baptist is to believe in soul competency all right and here's what it's and here's the fascinating thing is that there are guys who will who will reject that because that disses creeds and confessions. And they will say they believe in the Second London Baptist Confession. But I would agree with the arguments that if you're going to say you subscribe to the confession, then that means you're you and your church need to be a part of a formal communion. And that's more than just a pastor's fraternal, okay, or just a pastor's fellowship. Article uh, paragraphs 14 and 15 in chapter 26 are very clear about what that means. So there's still a lot of that soul competency, autonomy that may not be anti-credal and anti-confessional, but it's anti-associational. It is anti-that still. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what we're still having to all battle because we've had that drilled in so much that, yes, the local church is important. Yes, the congregation is important. But that but we need help. All right. For an example, how much easier and better would it be if you are a part of a confessional association where you all think about the Lord's Day, the ordinary means of grace and the sacraments the same way? And you're trying to work with each other through the COVID stuff about meeting, not meeting. And you allow for charity and room of, of differences. It, it, there's not an associational stance that you've got to do this or that. But it's a lot easier if you've got like-minded brothers that you can work through those things. And something else talking about, how did William Carey and Andrew Full and all those men become friends? If you read their biographies, it's because they actually met each other at associational meetings. Mm. That's how they connected with each other, is they started meeting and you hear one of them preach and, you know, Fuller heard Carey preach and he came up to him and said, you know, I want to get to know you more, I'm paraphrasing. But but that's how that worked. That's how that fostered. And in, and um, we've allowed too long to have this idea that local churches are to be seen as little kingdoms in their territory. Yeah. And you know what? We're building our little domain here and, and we don't really care about what's happening, you know, elsewhere. And um, it requires and, and if you see a pattern. We have lost so much of this in local churches where we're all like little islands and we don't care about each other. And then that just magnifies them when churches don't see. I, I, do we see a vital spiritual interest in our sister churches? Do we see that? Do we feel? Or when they have a problem, it's like, well, tough luck for them. Or how can we recruit some members to get over here where there's more you know, stability? Yeah. And um, and I think that we've we've lost that we have we've totally we have lost what it, and I would argue and I think if we could bring back Kiffin and Keach and all those guys, I think if we were to ask them what does it mean to be a Baptist, I think they would argue and say part of it is real formal communion cooperation in an association and an assembly. And I think, as I've said on many things, I think they would tell a lot of places take Baptists off the church sign because you're not mm-hmm. Baptist. Uh, because the definition that we have is so Americanized and individualized, I don't think they would recognize it. And Man. that goes for early American Baptists, too. It's not just, I don't want people to think, well, that's just a British thing. You know, that's just what the Brits did. We're Americans. <laughs> Be Ron Swanson or something. Um, that's what a lot of American Baptists, and yes, even here in the Deep South, they really believed in strong associations. And that's that's been lost. And yeah. I, one last thing, and I think that part of it is because of how, and I know I'm getting wound up, so I probably need to calm down. But I think a lot of it is because of how a lot of associations and SBC life operate is not a real help for the cause either. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, let us say, excess that exists with people just getting paid money and they're not really doing much. Well, man, you know, we're creating committees way. that are just good old boy clubs that, yeah. that don't do anything. Yeah. But um, that that that's a whole nother topic i guess so uh, do you guys uh, connor brandon jake anybody have any closing thoughts on this topic maybe a closing thought is just here's an encouragement to you local church pastor who's laboring in this context where you want to be somewhere you know polity wise that you're not or maybe it's just here's a good resource to check out or maybe it's for the local church member who's convinced but his church is not like that well i'd just say you know i said earlier that, that you know Structurally speaking, you know, my church isn't where I would like it to be, but, and maybe that's the case that, you know, 
whatever church you're you're serving in or attending, but that doesn't necessarily mean um, that God's not doing things through your church and that, you know, maybe you're through one-on-one conversations, through um, teaching, you know, you can lay the groundwork slowly for slow change because slow change is going to be the lasting change. You come in here and you turn stuff upside down, you're either going to be fired or it's not going to, it's not going to stick. So um, I guess my encouragement would just be, even if things, you know, the way they're listed on your website or whatever, if they don't look like you want them to look by, you know, who's called what label and who's doing what function right now isn't exactly, you know, dotting every I and crossing every T like you'd want it to. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that, that God's not doing good stuff in that church. Cause that's how I feel. I mean, I really do feel like our church is, is moving in a healthy direction, but um, you know, structurally we're just not where I would want us to be right now. So. Good stuff. Well, um, I haven't been a pastor too, too long, but I, I think if anybody is in a new season of pastoring or, or their first season of pastoring, um, here's what I might tell them. I would say you come in and you're seeing an old church, um, unless you're a church planter, you're seeing an old church with fresh eyes. And that church has its traditions. It has its um, what they're used to. It has um, things that they've done for decades, long before you got there. Um, and I think there, it takes some amount of hubris to say, to come in and say, they got it wrong. Now I'm here and we're going to get it right now. Um, you might be correct in your theology. You might be correct in your ecclesiology. Um, but just to what Brandon was saying, that's not saying that God did not move in this church in the 152 years that it's been here before I, I've been here. Um, but, and so that is what I'll say, number one. Number two, um, you might think, I'm going to do all of this in year one. Take, take those ideas and maybe expand that to five. And then you're going to say, I'm going to do all this in five years. Well, you need to take that and expand it to 10. If you do one of the things that you, that you build your list, you know, that all oh, that, this has got to change. I got to do this. I got to do this. Got to do this. If you accomplish one of those things to, to bring your church into a healthier polity, into a healthier um, membership, whatever it is, if you do one of those things in five years, amen, praise God. If you do one of those things in 10 years, if it takes you that long, praise God. Um, your job is to bring your church closer and closer um, to what the New Testament teaches of how, how a church should function, how a church should look, um, and, and all those areas. So if it takes, if it's stressful and it takes longer than, than you expected, um, just make sure you're thanking God and, and celebrating the wins, so to speak, when they come, because, you know, changing a culture in a church, you're, it's almost like um, trying to reverse course within a river, the current is going against you. It takes time. It takes getting everybody to stop rowing in one direction. And one by one, you're getting them to row in the right direction. Um, if that illustration is helpful at all, but, um, (laughs) I would just say, you know, keep plowing and, and know that shepherding is hard. Um, sheep are stubborn, but you're going to win more people to your quote unquote side, um, by loving them. Uh, rather than beating them over the head with all your facts. 
So, yeah, and one one final thing I I, I do want to say is that you know when I left seminary, so if if we're talking about a scale of well, not even when I left seminary, when I when I moved from just being a seminarian to being a seminarian and a pastor, you know, on a scale of one to ten, one being pragmatist, ten being idealist, like I was a nine or a ten, you know. Mm-hmm. But you but you have to remember when you get in the local church context that you're not this is not a seminary classroom. Like, you know, so yeah. you 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 don't you don't debate these things back and forth with your congregants like you would in a seminary classroom. Like that's not the way, (laughs) that's not the way ministry works. And I know that sounds obvious, but I mean, I've heard stories in our town here about just, I mean, I don't know what the people were thinking when they tried to do what they tried to do. Like, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't get it. So just, you know, um, bump that if you're a 10 on the idealist, you know, scale bump that down to a five or six you know and and just like connor said just love people you know and that's that's so much of it um it really is because the more you love them i know it sounds like a cliche but the more they will really listen to you when you try to Mm -hmm. um shepherd them in a direction that maybe they're not familiar with yeah and i would say loving them just to be clear loving them is not um divorced from or it's not it's not apart from working to, to bring your church into better ecclesiology because that's that promotes obviously better discipleship you can love them and care for them better if those um, if those if that polity is in place um, but um, yeah it, no, that, yeah that, that's it, totally right it, it can be it can be a challenge to to get there for sure but um, I, I think that the hard part is sometimes convincing um, and leading your your people to know like this is for your benefit. Yeah, this is this is not a power grab. You know, this is not, um, you know, whatever fill in the blank. This is not what this is. This is this is the church. This is Christ loving you. And he gave us the New Testament. He gave us these structures to put in in place in in our church to 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 do that. So, um, yeah, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, I mean, I think we could probably talk about this for a couple hours, and I don't know how many of you guys would want to listen Another to it hour? That, that whole time. Um, maybe you do. Maybe you want us to talk more about this as we go on, and that's fine. Maybe we'll do that. But I think this has been a good little conversation, just kind of talking polity a little bit and what that looks like in the life of the local church. I, I hope, I, I think this is going to be beneficial to you guys. Uh, so for those who've been listening, um, and I guess I should just say guys, I think we have gals listening as well should be more um, gender inclusive or something like that. I don't know what the terminology is. (laughs) Whatever Jake's uh, making fun of me for, you know, being a liberal or something for doing that. I don't know. Um, Anyway, uh, you guys have been listening. If you've been listening this far, you understand our our inside jokes to some degree, I think. So uh, you'll you'll cut us some slack. Anyway, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.